what is the idea that's going to somehow filter down to help all children learn, why not flip it around and empower people on the ground, community leaders and educators and family members to come up with these bottom-up ideas and let those flourish because those are the people who know best. They know their children best. They know the community best. And we just have to, I think, really push ourselves hard to keep that bottom-up mindset. Welcome to Reality Check, a weekly podcast about anything and everything having to do with education. I'm Jeannie Allen, founder and CEO of the Center for Education Reform. We chose the name Reality Check because a lot of what you read about education these days is often wrong or misleading. If you want to know what's really going on in American education, from K through career, you're going to need a reality check. My guest today on Reality Check in the studio is an education innovator, a dear friend, and a veteran leader of the education transformation space. Mike Feinberg founded one of the most successful charter school networks in the country, which has influenced thousands more. He's an old friend of ours and is currently the president and co-founder of the Texas School Venture Fund, which works to increase the supply and diversity of great schools and communities where families are starved for more options. Mike's a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania and alumnus of Teach for America, and he founded KIPP in 1994, which has now led to a network of over 200 public charter schools pre-K through 12. In 2000, he founded the KIPP Foundation to make it scale. Mike Feinberg, welcome to Reality Check. Jeannie Allen, thank you for having me. You know, I remember um, watching you on 60 Minutes. I'm old enough to remember when you and your partner, Dave Levin, showed up to have a conversation with, was it Mike Wallace? Mike Wallace. Uh-huh. Oh, my gosh. And and he was fascinated by these two teachers who were about to launch, unbeknownst to him, this movement, but who had taken on schooling. I think at the time, the fact there were these two schools not one serving, that looked really similar. They weren't twins, but they were cousins serving different types of underserved populations, one in the South Bronx, one in Southwest Houston, both getting great results, both um, defying the odds, so to speak. I think that's what was interesting to them to probe into. Was it fascinating when you think back about like being on 60 Minutes as a teacher and talking to Mike Wallace? Uh, It was pretty surreal at the time. I remember telling my board, you know, Kip was, we just started the state charter. That was actually the first year we became a state charter school. I remember going and telling my board, you know, I got a call from a 60 Minutes producer, and I think Mike Wallace is coming down to, <laughs> to do a piece on us. And they all put their heads on the desk and said, what do you do now, Mike? I said, nothing. We've been just been doing a good job educating the kids. I mean, they want, they want to understand why is it working. And so when you think about that and now where we are in terms of the larger uh, ecosystem of education reform, education transformation, have we made progress or have we made a shift back? I think we've made a huge amount of progress. Um, At the same time, we shouldn't be doing the dance of celebration that we've fixed everything and we should also be our own our own worst critic of where have we still fallen short and and are we slipping in some ways. Uh, when you think back to the debate at the time when this, I guess, this latest generation of ed reform started in the early 90s and proceeded since, I mean, it started with us debating, can a poor child learn as well as a middle upper income child? And some people thought yes, some people thought no, and that, that's where the debate was at the time. I think we are well past 
that that debate doesn't even come up anymore. Now we're now we're having conversations beyond can a school be successful. Even that debate's gone. Now it's what cities, what states have the have the right ingredients to pull this all off. Um, so I think we've made tremendous progress. Not to mention there are thousands and thousands of, of children tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of children in charter schools that have flourished, that got great educations, they're taking their educations and now being productive members of society. And we've seen places where that that healthy competition has pushed children in traditional districts to keep to, to do even better as well. So there's a lot of success that's happening. At the same time, I think as we're entering our second quarter century, um, What's the, what gas is still in the tank? What are we and how does things look similar versus different from the original playbook? Um, and I always think about Howard Fuller's caution that we don't grow ourselves into becoming that which we've been fighting against for the last 25 years. And I think you see elements of that ha- happening in our movement as well. And so those are some there's some canaries in the in the in the coal mine mm-hmm. that that worry me, but. There's been tremendous success in the last 25 years, and we should all be very proud of what we've been doing to fight for children and families getting better educations and having great lives. Well, and let's talk about how to accelerate that even more. And I want to get into higher education because it's a it's a it's another interest and activity of yours these days, and how we help educate kids in different ways, um, particularly as they go on their path. But when you think about the growth of this concept of charters, first of all, we should level set the audience because a lot of people still don't understand, even those who are well-informed, I'd argue. Um, I hope I'm not insulting anyone out there, but it's true. What a charter school does that's different than a traditional public school, like why a charter? Is it the charter or is it some element of what you have when you have a charter that lets you succeed? Right. So... Charter schools are public schools, mm-hmm. part of the public school system as well. And there's not, I don't, it's hard to say one thing about a charter school because by definition, charter schools are, are, can be so different. A, a charter school is an opportunity. And that in the hands of uh, educators or family members or community leaders who've created that charter, it's an opportunity for them to take a look at what kind of education is being currently offered in their community and what is needed and do they have any great ideas of how to deliver education better? And that's the opportunity. And where people take good advantage of that opportunity, and there are uh, people th- thoughtfully create a plan and they execute on the plan, great things happen. And where people don't put together a good plan and don't execute on it, bad things happen or fraudulent things happen. And then those those schools have closed down. Right. But I think over the we've charter schools, unlike traditional public school system, have been, we've been tending the garden over the last 20 years. And so good schools start and they grow and they flourish. Some bad schools have started, not not a ton, but some bad schools have started. Those, those close. And over time, you've now, that's why I think we see tremendous uh, growth and, and tremendous achievement in charter schools compared to other schools because the good ones have been flourishing and growing. And bad ones, we've been chalking those up as lessons learned either in the authorizing process or in just, eh, interesting idea, but didn't work. And the other thing that has been a credible success is some cities and some communities, superintendents, mayors, other public officials have copied or embraced the notion and been very innovative. But yet recently in Washington, D.C., there seems to be this pushback, even the district getting $21 million to fill a hole when enrollment's going down in traditional public schools, up in charter schools, 
and they're filling a hole. Why? Well, according to the Washington Post, they have this overrun of administrators, which seems like the exact reason the charters were started is because you shouldn't just be throwing money because there's a bunch of people there, right? That doesn't sound logical to me. I agree. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a good question. The other thing about charters, which remember, is by definition, it allows for bottom-up solutions. So instead of um, in the superintendent's office, in the, the school board room, in some philanthropy, 50th floor of the skyscraper, trying to come up with the, what is the idea that's going to somehow filter down to help all children learn, why not flip it around and empower people on the ground, community leaders and educators and family members to come up with these bottom-up ideas and let those flourish because those are the people who know best. They know their children best. They know the community best. That's how KIPP started back in the day. Mm -hmm. Um, That's how many of the large CMOs exist today started back in the day. Um, and we just have to, I think, really push ourselves hard to keep that bottom-up mindset when it's getting too easy, as you're kind of pointing out, to think about things more in a top-down way, yeah. which is same old, same old. Yeah. And CMOs, charter management organizations, of which they're now a lot more than there used to be, still some mom and pops. But something you just said reminded me of an example that I use all the time when I'm pushing back on people trying to make um, trying to make charters and charter laws look a lot like traditional laws. I will stand in front of people, and many folks have heard me say this, with you in particular in mind, and say, you know, to folks who are pushing back against, like, the leader or the principal, the teacher who shows up at a state, which takes a lot of of boldness and courage, and says, I want to start this school. Here's my plan. They come up with a whole thing, and more and more, they're getting rejected because they're not proven. And I'll say, well, you know, there's this guy who once stood in front of his kids, and they sang, and they clapped, and they had this, they modeled it after a woman named Harriet Ball, who was one of your idols, I know, I'd love you to talk about her. And um, no one said to this crazy guy and his partner who were like, we're going to stand up and make kids sing and dance and, you know, (laughs) recite things and do it differently. They didn't say to him, well, gosh, you've never done this before. Why would we let you? Instead, they took a chance and look what we got. We have to give people a chance. That's right. That's, it reminds me of a, uh, a visit I had back in the early years um, when Kate was starting the charter. I had a state representative do a surprise visit. She was making sure we weren't a Thursday school. Those are schools that say, please come and visit, but you have to come on Thursdays. I don't remember what day she showed up, but it was like a Tuesday <laughs> or Wednesday. But she was a surprise visit. She's like, I'm here because I want to see the school. And I knew that, and I walk around, and she's kind of got a scowl on her face. And, you know, I'm showing her, you talk about it, we learned from Harriet Ball, the, a lot of joy in our school because the kids are singing and chanting and learning and having fun with it all. And she's like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> we, get to, we get to the end of the tour. We get to the door. She's like, I'm like, so what do you think? She's like, I think this is a great school. And this is exactly why I don't like charter schools. <gasps> I said, excuse me? She said, this works because you have the ability to do things differently than all the other schools. And I'm like, well, with all due respect, uh, Representative, then why don't you, you're in Austin. You can change the laws in Texas. Why don't you allow the other schools to be able to have the same freedom to do what we do? She got quiet and said, I haven't thought of that before. <laughs> so that just shows we need to work on critical thinking, even that's at the awesome. political level. But that's that, that, that's the type of, I think, push that, you know, the the – the, the the ed reform leader, the Harriet Balls of the world, who are these great teachers, when you don't just let them be empowered to do great things in their 700-square-foot classroom, well, if you give them and their teaching disciples the power to do things in the entire school building, 
and create new types of schools, this is what can happen. Great things for kids. It's amazing. And good things can happen, too, when you start thinking about how to change as well another part of our education um, offering that's suffering a bit, which higher education. So you and I have done a little bit of collaborating on some higher education transformation. Tell me where you are now in your thinking about <laughs> higher ed. Uh, my thinking is that uh, as difficult as I thought the K-12 bureaucracy was to change, welcome to higher ed. <laughs> um, it's, and, you know, there's definitely been some interesting thinking I've gone through over the past, especially five years. A lot of my early alumni really have come of age, not just going to college or even through college, but my oldest uh, kids, my oldest kipsters are now in their early to mid-30s. And 10-plus years beyond their college years, whether they went or not, I've had a chance to see the good, the bad, and the ugly, and really been thinking about it. Um, and what I realized is that at, at our best, KIPP Houston was the first region in KIPP to get to 50% of the kids graduating from college, tracking from eighth grade, which was a huge milestone to hit when the starting point is somewhere around 8 to 10%. And I remember about five years ago celebrating that milestone for about 15 seconds, and thought, shoot, that's half. I, I didn't say shoot. Um, and, and I realized that I, while I didn't have research data, I had all kinds of anecdotal data that if you look at, I looked at my half of my kids that graduated from college and my half that didn't. And I couldn't say my half that graduated from college are doing just fine and my half that didn't graduate from college were all messed up. It didn't work that way. Because if I, if I unpack the kids that did not graduate from college, despite the fact that we at KIPP did not provide them any help or tools for any pathway other than college prep. A bunch of them had found their way into the military. They found their way into the trades. They found their way to become entrepreneurs on their own businesses, doing just fine. Then I looked at my half that graduated from college, and a lot of them were doing just fine, but not all of them, not the ones that went $80,000 in debt for a philosophy major. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of lessons learned from all this. And I didn't have any regrets from having a college for all mentality back in the early to mid 90s because when you're showing up in neighborhoods and 5% of the kids are graduated from college, it's, it, I think the right visceral reaction is what the, you know, let's all get in the bus, let's all go. Mm -hmm. But 20, 25 years later with the, later with the data in, realize that um, a more nuanced, mature way to think about this is that college prep was a good thing to do in our schools. And we, we don't need to debate that whatsoever. Soft bigotry of low expectations, we don't need to mess with that. College prep's a good thing in our schools. But college prep does not need to mean college for all. This is where I think we collectively, over, we overstepped and overshot the target. And I think that hindsight being 2020, if I could do it all over again, my college counselors would have been career counselors or life counselors. And it's not either or, it's an and. College would have been certainly an important pathway for a bunch of our kids, but not the only pathway and not for all of our kids. And the end goal, even college is a means to an end. Right? At the end of the day, we want children to grow up to be productive members of society as adults. Mm -hmm. That's the end goal. Um, and just depending on what our kids want to do, college is one pathway for that, but not the only pathway, especially between trades and military and being entrepreneurs. And we have to, if, if we're going to, if we're going to embrace our children, their different learning styles, and we're going to go where we're going to take them where they are and take them where they want, meet them where they are and take them where they want to be, then we got to realize that not every child 
wants to go to college and depending on their interests and what they're good at, we should be helping them connect their passion and their interests and their talents with all kinds of different careers, some of which require four years of college, some require two years of college, some require no college. And we should be celebrating all those pathways because at the end, they all lead to freedom to be productive members of society. So at that point in mind, Mike, riddle me this. There's all these people out there saying, well, there's 7 million jobs. There's 7 million jobs available. Uh, We should have kids going into that, or they should have college. Mm -hmm. And you just put it really interesting. College prep is good, full stop. That doesn't mean college the way we know it today is. But when we say that, there's a whole bunch of traditional schools, and maybe some non-traditional schools, that then begin to segment or, as the old term used to be, track. Track. Mm -hmm. So how do you avoid that when we acknowledge that there are pathways that still could have someone going on a vocational track learning philosophy, but who's to decide? Like, I worry that there's a, an educator or a leader well-meaning out there that's going to look at someone and say, yeah, you're kind of dopey in math. You should go over here without realizing their brilliance in literature. Right, and, that, and that's going to be the kid who's going to cure cancer someday, right, and how we make sure that happens. Exactly. Um, I think the difference between now having those different pathways and 30, 40, 50 years ago is because – Center for Ed Reform and others have paved this way for there to be all kinds of school choice. Uh, I think we've now empowered families, the parents and the kids, to choose schools, in a, not everywhere, but in the mindset in a lot of cities and in some rural areas, and I hope Center for Ed Reform does more in the rural areas too, where I think people realize they do have a choice now when it comes to what school their kid's going to attend, and it doesn't just have to be the one in their zone down, you know, three blocks down to the right. And therefore, if a kid is in a school where the, the, the teacher is saying, you know what, you're kind of dopey in math, and therefore I don't think you should go into the sciences or the, the medical profession, I think we need to figure out how to put a hammer in your hand, and the kid dreams of being a doctor someday, that's not the school for them. Mm-hmm. They need to they, – and if, if they go see the – I think parents now feel more empowered. And if the school is not going to change that or to have that attitude, they need, to, they need to not walk right and go to school down the block. They need to walk left and go to that other school down the block, that charter school, that private school, whatever, because I think there's now lots of options out there. That's the key, right? We have to have those options. There have to be more tailor-ready Um, or tailor-made ready schools that parents and students and the people in their community can help them with that then prepare you for that life. But you can't go from cookie cutter away from cookie cutter. You know what I mean? We we have to break it all up. Right. And that's, I mean, we were early on, I remember in several KIPP classrooms was that there'd be the the John Belushi from Animal House poster on the (laughs) wall with just having the sweatshirt that says college on it. Right, and that was kind of our mentality back then. It's like we're gonna—you need to go to college. Which college? We don't know. We don't. And what should you major? We don't know. And what's what's the what's the cost? Like benefit analysis. We haven't done it. Just go to college because it's better for you. Um, and as a result of that, I've you know, I'm I'm a big believer in not having kids drop out of college track because they're struggling in math, and I believe in that. 
But at the same time, I also have seen the reality of what happens when we send kids to college who don't really want to go or that wasn't the right track. They, they're in, and they're in the worst place possible. They have the debt of a college degree without a college degree itself. Mm-hmm. And I, when I close my eyes at night, those are the kids I think about. Mm-hmm. Okay, so another area then, um, and you wrote an article about higher ed for the Texas School Venture Fund, uh, which I will commend to everybody. Another thing you've been talking about is this scope versus scale thought. And again, we were talking about charters. And I almost think this applies to all of it. This applies to the higher ed theme as well. Mm-hmm. We are changing the way we do business. We need to be changing the way we do business. We need to change the way we do pathways. There's more. You've been talking on this show for a long time in all of our work, in your work. There are a lot of us walking around saying, look, We have things available to us that we didn't have 10, 20, 40, 80 years ago. It's technology, it's brain science, it's all sorts of stuff. So clearly a two or four or none is not the answer any more than traditional school versus private versus charter is the one answer. Um, But how how do you change that mindset and allow people to understand that diversity is the one, and then bring that back to the scope versus scale thoughts you've been right. writing about. I think we, just, we, we need to value that and realize that something's gotten lost in the shuffle in the last few years. I call this, we're now, what I want to scope to me is the third frontier. First frontier was prove the possible. Can we start schools in communities where traditionally there has not been great education results and now have great education results? And we did that. And we did that in different places all over the country. And for the last maybe about 10, 12 years, it's been about scale, scale, scale. Find, take those models that work and scale them, scale them, scale them. Um, and I think that's great. Somewhere along the, the way, and I don't think this was written down, I don't think it was a conscious thought, but scale became an either or instead of scope. And I started hearing from some smaller charter operators and people who want to be operators who who asked me for help saying, you know what, I, I, I have this idea, I want to get going, but it's hard for me to find any support because honestly, KIPP kind of takes all the oxygen out of the room, um, oxygen and resources and grant funding and everything else. Um, and I know that as, the, as people were in giving money and support to help the KIPP and all of our CMO cousins out there grow and grow, which is a good thing, um, it became an either or instead of an and. And we stopped thinking about things like trade schools, things like schools for special needs kids, mm-hmm. schools for gifted and talented kids, kids, schools that had more personalized learning, more distance learning. And what were, what were we doing to, uh, again, allow more bottom-up to happen, especially as the large charters, which start as bottom-up, but as they grew to become these large organizations, they themselves were becoming more top-down, which was working for the the school, the children that they were serving well, but they're not serving all the kids. So there's room for other people to get in on this, and which is something when um, I was still very active in, in Houston, nationally with KIPP, I was trying to always allow more seats around the table for more people to come in. And I hope that there needs to be a, a, always a thought about that, about what are we doing to make room for other people to come in here and not take away from what we have, but add to what we have. Well, I remember us having this discussion years ago, um, and I was highly critical of some of the philosophy of the association that represented charter schools in Texas then 
on the point of pushing or not being inclusive of the smaller schools that had started to help at-risk kids. Because, you know, Texas's law, the first go-around was focus on at-risk kids. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people started, the first school started, were about dropouts, practically. Most of them, a majority, not all. And so when you start a school focused on dropout kids, it's going to take a long time to get to the... You're not going to see good results right away. No. and Potentially, depending on forever. Right. Depend- and you yeah. and you may end up realizing that most of the kids who dropped out were special, had special needs that weren't addressed. And I just remember people being like, well, they are just not doing very well and they shouldn't be at the table. And um, they were trying to do a job that nobody else wanted to do. And uh, I fear that there's not enough of them around anymore. I remember testifying before Senator Florence Shapiro when she was chair of the Senate Ed Committee in Texas saying, you know, if you've got... There are examples of dropout recovery schools that are not doing a good job and should be closed. There are others that are taking 16, 17, 18, 19-year-old dropouts off the street, reading a second grade level. In one year, they're getting to a fifth or sixth grade level. They're still showing up on your list as a failing school, but you need to bring those people to Austin and give them a medal, <laughs> right? Because given the, the value add, which is kind of the, the focus on how do we need some way to differentiate who's doing a good job and who's not by looking at things like growth. Um, and I think that's how growth got more and more into the accountability system of Texas because they realized they needed a way to differentiate the fakes, the phonies, and the frauds from who's doing a good job. And you couldn't tell based on one bar to right. your point. Right. Well, hopefully, Scope and, and your focus on that will really address that, too. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned medals. You received the Presidential Medal of Freedom from George W. in 2008. I did. I got to go to the Oval Office with my, my wife and, and son and mom. That is pretty cool. That was it was it was a it was a big honor. Uh, President Bush um, uh, was, a, was a great leader, but, uh, back when he was governor of Texas, um, you know he he's the one who helped start get charter schools going in, in in Texas. We were one of the first charters within Houston Independent School District, and when we became a state charter, he came on and visited our our school that year, and he he was a fan, and, and we were fans. That's so cool. Okay, speaking of uh, presidents and presidential contenders, um, let's talk a little bit about politics. Uh oh. Yeah, I know. So, Mike Feinberg, uh, my guest on Reality Check, you've had your share of uh, political encounters over the years with governors and presidents and pushing for things. So, you must sit back and watch. Uh, what's happening with the candidates? Interesting. We were talking about earlier prepping for this. Beto O'Rourke, Mrs. Beto, Mr. Beto. They flipped on charters. I think Cory Booker, who's now all over the press because he was this big fan uh, and supporter of school choice in all of its incarnations, and Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos, and he's kind of flip flop. What do you think is going on? Uh. I, I think uh, there's probably some calculation of who, which friends do I need to, to get to the next level of politics. And I think we need to, to have a sobering look in the mirror and realize that if this is our friends are now running away from us, we must not be all that influential as friends, we must, nor are we perceived as powerful. That's interesting. Um, and I, I think what have we done to allow our friends to take us for granted. Uh, I don't say think they uh, they probably they still want to be our friends. They probably think they can track to the other side, uh, do what they got to do, and we'll still be f- without consequences, and we'll still be there at the end of the day and be friends no matter what. 
And I don't think that's right. And I think we need to call some of our friends on the carpet on that and, and remind them about the commitments they made a long time ago to a lot of, not just us, but to a lot of our kids and families. And they need, and we should expect to see some more courageous leadership out of them today. And you've met Mrs. Beto O'Rourke, correct? Because she started, helped start a charter school? Yes. She's in the Texas arena. Uh-huh. Yeah. And uh, Cory Booker, have you met Cory Booker? I have. Yeah, I think a few times, right? Uh-huh. And um, so you weren't necessarily surprised, but to your point, maybe we need to look in the mirror and I, hold them hold them yeah, a little I, bit more accountable. I mean, if not a lot. Given how the Democratic Party is, has kind of tacked more in the to the progressive side to the left, I, I think they are they are tacking along with the rest of the crowd, um, and we've which. To some extent, I think if, if, if politics is a contact sport, they're trying to win and more power to them. Um, but I think we, we need to take some accountability for that of why, why was it so easy for them to do that and not give a flying fat rat about us mm-hmm. and our constituency. Although it kills me because the teachers unions, who presumably that's who they're going after, not presumably, of course, we all know that, uh, backed Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama won. So it's not like they always pick a winner. In fact, nine times out of 10, they don't pick a winner. Which is a great example of where there should be some more courageous leadership, just like President Obama was courageous on this issue. Right, exactly. Okay, so final question for you today, Mike, my friend, on Reality Check. Um, Let's talk just briefly about the teachers' unions. Are they going to keep staying in this intransient position against educational freedom? And do we just have to do a dance around them or keep in trying to enact things like push things like Janice? Or is there going to be a rational discourse in the years to come? Strikes? Are we going to keep having strikes? Is this yeah. just going to fall apart? That's a great question, Jeannie. I'd, I'd like to think there's going to be a rational discourse. And I've seen time and time again different efforts to try to have the school choice and the ed reform community, figure out how to work with the unions. I just, uh, maybe there is a way to do that, and we just haven't seen it happen yet, but it certainly hasn't happened yet. Um, And I think we need to realize that the the unions, as some of their leaders have said in the past, that their their constituency is not focused on kids and families and can they read or not in third grade. Their constituency are teachers and job protection. Um, sometimes that aligns with our interests as well, and sometimes it, it diverges. Um, and maybe there's a way to figure out how we all, at the end of the day, come together to have great schools for all of our children. But uh, we need to realize that we're looking at this from, from two different constituencies and two different lenses. That's great. And until then, we uh, have to keep, uh, as you would say, plowing on. To keep plowing on. To open more uh, great schools for kids and make sure we uh, allow parents to choose the ones that are right for their children. Amen. Mike Feinberg has been my guest today, president and co-founder of the Texas School Venture Fund and an education reform pioneer. I am so grateful that you were able to come in the studio today, Mike. Thanks for having me, Jeannie. Appreciate it. Be sure to tune in next week for another exciting episode of Reality Check. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to this edition of Reality Check. You can subscribe to Reality Check at iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn, and never miss an episode. Visit us online at edreform.com and follow CER on Twitter at edreform and me, Jeannie Allen. 
I look forward to exploring the world of education with you and another prominent guest next time. See you then.